Hello and welcome to Not If I Reboot You First, a podcast where we take our favorite properties and reboot them before Hollywood has the chance to. It's a little bit like brainstorming fanfiction. I'm Lindsay and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Tanner, I use they, them pronouns, and we have another guest for you guys this week, uh, one we're very excited to have. He is the creator of the Cold Crash Pictures YouTube channel and the director and writer of Second Service. It's Serge! Hi, I am Serge and I use he, him pronouns. Awesome. We're extremely excited to have you on today. <laughs> Thank you. It's so nice of you to introduce me as an actual, like a, a writer-director and not a YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to give and make everyone sound as cool as they possibly can while I introduce them. <laughs> so, Serge, uh, before we get into it, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I am a, uh, I like to be introduced as a filmmaker, I suppose, but uh, I guess I'm most popular for, uh, I've got a YouTube channel, Cold Crash Pictures. Uh, I've been doing that since 2014, been doing it seriously since 2014. And then, um, uh, I guess I just, I make videos about movies, and uh, uh, I put up like a top 10 list every year, and it's slowly becoming more and more esoteric. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, that video with all the different uh, Godzilla movies was very illuminating. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, um, for those of you who haven't had what I'm going to euphemistically call the pleasure, uh, <laughs> I, I did a video where it was an unscripted video, which is not my style. I usually script most, like 99% of my content, but I managed to fit the first 15 films of the Showa Godzilla series into a grid on one screen and I watched them all uh, while just kind of talking while it played and it did not get a lot of views and it should not have gotten a lot of views so all is right with the world as far yeah. as I'm concerned yeah and uh, honestly the two-parter about Gone with the Wind was very very good thank, yeah. you. thank you that's 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 the stuff that I'm actually yeah. really proud of yeah you do you do really good stuff and, um, I was explaining you to some of my friends who haven't followed you yet, and I'm like, he's like one step below the people like Mikey Newman and Lindsay Ellis. Oh my gosh. He, he deserves <laughs> to be up there. He'll get there at some yeah. point. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. So, what have you brought to the table today to reboot? So glad you guys asked. Um, I, you know, for the longest time, I was like, how in the world am I going to pick something worthy of worthy of rebooting and then um <clears throat> it just popped into my head one day uh today we are going to be rebooting dinotopia i had a feeling okay <laughs> oh which hopefully everybody's familiar with <laughs> a bit. okay i f i feel like people at the very least would have seen the books as children yeah and and be like exposure to the cover of this book is kind of all you need to get the gist yeah. yeah or even just watching star wars episode one and looking at any scene of naboo yeah i guess so oh yeah which for for people who don't know what the book looks like it's um so dinotopia is this story of um this island sort of cut off from the rest of the world they have it nobody's ever discovered it before or uh, it's because it's like blocked by reefs and uh, storms and whatnot, but basically it's an island where humans and sentient, intelligent dinosaurs live in harmony together. Um, and it was created uh, not by a, a not by a traditional storyteller, but by a concept artist uh, by the name of James Gurney. Hmm. 
who was doing these private commissions uh, where he was just painting pictures of humans living alongside dinosaurs in this kind of um, Greek-inspired, Spanish-Castilian-inspired architecture and dress style, and there's like medieval influences. Um, But so basically these paintings, he he turned it into a whole book series, and he illustrated a, a number of stories, and it's kind of grown from there. Um, but I'd mentioned Naboo earlier because some of the most famous locations in this Dinotopia universe look a lot like the planet of Naboo from Star Wars uh, to a degree where people have whispered that perhaps lawsuits might have been appropriate. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, uh, but James Gurney, who is aware of the similarities of Naboo in his work, has uh, remained optimistic about it. He says he doesn't. He doesn't mind if his work has influenced Hollywood films. Because I should, probably should have mentioned earlier that the, the for this Thanatopia began in 1992. That was the publication of the first book. Yeah. yeah. So they would have beaten Phantom Menace by a little bit. Right. Yeah, by at least six years. And that's assuming they started pre-production a year before the film came out. Mm-hmm. Probably longer for the pre-production too. But I think I'm looking at the pictures and there's a bit... Like, it's a lot of high concept art, but I can also see a lot of um, classical art influences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mostly, uh, like, Victorian stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, I threw out Greek and, and Spanish earlier, but it's really, it's it's a bunch of different kinds. Yeah. Yeah, like, I was getting some, like, pre-Raphaelite transitioning into the, oh, what was it called? Um, academic? Painting mm. of okay, late yeah. yeah. Uh, like the vibe I'm getting from some of these is like the really fancy greeting cards <laughs> that you can, <laughs> like the ten dollar ones. Like I just found one. It's like a group of flower girls walking through this really nice garden, and there's also just like an oviraptor chilling with them. Oh yeah, I know exactly which one you're talking about. <laughs> and I feel like you'd find that greeting card and you pop it open, and it's like thinking of you in this time of need. <laughs> So I, I don't think I read very many Dinotopia books. I know for sure I read one that involved a circus. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and like the first half of that one was there was this mysterious dinosaur that no one knew who they were. And there was like basically a cryptid. And then they finally meet him. He has like a child level intelligence and they, they try and help him join the circus. And his first trick is I walked in a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Is that true? <laughs> I, I th- I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> so for the uninitiated, the book series is, it's James Gurney published four, um, four, they're not picture books because there is a lot of text, um, but they are um, heavily illustrated, these four books that tell the story of these two people who shipwreck onto Dinotopia in the 1860s, I think. It's a father and a son. And okay. And then so these four stories kind of just it's it's basically the plot such as it is, is basically an excuse to get these characters around to as many different spots on the island as possible. And you kind of find out the backstories of each and they have a little adventure. It's incredibly episodic um, by nature, um, just as an excuse to be able to showcase all of the the wonderful cities and locations that James Gurney came up with. Uh, but so it's not 
it's not quite like Game of Thrones where there's this high overarching overarching fantasy plot um but so the series it's it's got a reputation for being ch very childish um basically just because it lends itself so well to children's books because in addition to the four illustrated books there are also like a bunch of fifth grade reading level chapter books that came out in conjunction with the series there was also a hallmark channel miniseries in 2002 i think i did see the miniseries yeah <laughs> and uh and I, there was also like one season a year later it, they they tried to adapt it to tv and it was like 13 episodes and then it died off um but anyway it's one of the few mediums oh it's also been adapted to uh, animation and even video games one of the few properties mediums it has not been adapted to yet is a theatrical film Hmm. It's ripe for being turned into a high concept. Yeah. And and not only that, but like the height of the book series was probably also around the height of Jurassic Park. Yeah. You'd think they'd want to cash in on that unless people were worried that it'd be seen as a ripoff. You know, I had read on Wikipedia that in 1994, none other than George Lucas <laughs> met with producers apparently to try and to, to discuss a film adaptation that then just never happened but he took all that art and turned it into <laughs> naboo <laughs> possibly <laughs> allegedly <laughs> i'll be you guys at legal department this episode <laughs> okay <laughs> well i'm pretty sure northern italy just looks like that uh -huh. so yeah yeah listen george has um I'm not going to say stolen. He's been inspired by a lot of works when mm -hmm. it comes to Star Wars. Yeah, it's kind of like um, uh, like when John Carter came out in 2012. Um, yeah. The, yeah. The film John Carter, not not the book. Um, it, it, it famously underperformed at the box office it, and it kind of bombed, even though I'm a defender of that film. I thought it was good. I, I, I liked it a lot. Um, but I think what it had going against it was that it it, it was late to its own party um yeah. The, yeah the text was so influential to so many different sci-fi authors over the years that by the time the original finally got adapted it looked like a ripoff uh and in fact like the the not not to keep harping on this but the one example that it stands out is when john carter is fighting the the blind apes in the coliseum that that looks like a ripoff of the geonosis coliseum sequence from star wars episode two when in fact it was probably the other way around yeah yeah and george lucas has said on numerous occasions that the reason why star wars exists is because he wanted to do his own flash gordon movie mm. which is also a rather <laughs> old series <laughs> so i guess the reason i mention it is because i think dinotopia would have the same problem if it was adapted to film People would say, "Oh, well, this is just this is just a little bit of Jurassic Park and a little bit of Star Wars and um, a little bit of Game of Thrones," and and people would say it's it's just ripping all of those off when in fact it it likely influenced them all. Yeah, yeah, but less. I think it has an advantage in that it's more much more of a fantasy kind of series. It's more fantasy than Jurassic Park ever was. Yes, and it's. Certainly not trying to be Game of Thrones. Right. Like, if we tried to make a TV show tomorrow, it would be a lot more episodic and slice of life than have this huge overarching thing, like you said. Right. Yeah. Well, 
the whole Game of Thrones comparison is just because of, oh, it's a fantasy book, but the problem is fantasy is such... Like, Game of Thrones is a very specific type of fantasy, and it's geared towards an adult audience. This is more geared towards, like, children, family audience. Right. So, of yeah. course, it's not going to do anything that Game of Thrones would do. Right. Well, and fa- fantasy runs such a gamut of other subgenres inside it, like... It's really more of a critic's problem if you're going to be saying, oh, is this going to be the next Game of Thrones or is this going to be the next Witcher or whatever? Right. Like, they're completely different animals. Right. They are, in fact, dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> so would this be either live action or animated? You know, I'm <clears throat> this is going to sound terrible no matter how I say it. Uh, I'm always rooting for live action just because <laughs> and, and it's not because animation is an inferior format or anything. It just it means that it will likely have more money attached. Yeah. yeah. It means that it will likely get more attention and talent and time and, and all that comes with it. Yeah, it'll get a lot more serious consideration from a particularly a Western audience. Right. Like, if this, was, if this were given to Studio Ghibli, like, mm. it wouldn't have any problems, I think. Yeah. Oh, that would look really nice. Yeah, that too. <laughs> and, you know, I it has been adapted to an animated film once. Um uh, which and I haven't seen it, but I have seen if you, I have seen the poster, and just judging by the poster, it sounds like um, they just went like for a Land Before Time sequel. It just looks like they aimed for the youngest audience possible. Oh yeah, I'm looking yeah. at that now. Yeah, and and not that there's anything wrong with that, but presumably we're talking about rebooting it for for like us. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Another point in not just live action, but specifically to do practical effects with it, because I feel like if we were doing CGI with this dinosaurs and the way they would go, people would probably be flashing back to Disney's dinosaur, Mm. which was, it was fine. I think it was more the premise that was odd than the animation, but I think if people see that kind of style of animation, they're immediately going to think, oh, where are the lemurs? (laughs) (laughs) I I think... To adapt Dinotopia to live action would be a great opportunity to finally update the science uh, a little bit. Um, hmm. And you can use it as an excuse to distinguish the look of your property from something as popular as like Jurassic Park. Because, yeah. I mean, if we learned anything from the two Jurassic Park sequels since 2015, they've decided they're going to stick with the canonical looks of all these dinosaurs, even though we know they didn't really look like that, especially the theropods. And so... Yeah. Dinotopia could go all out with the feathers and with um, um, like renditions of dinosaurs where their skin isn't like vacuum formed to their skulls. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just saw I just think uh, it's it'd be nice to see a big budget dinosaur property that isn't a prequel or a sequel to Jurassic Park at this point. And I think. Oh, yeah. Updating yeah. science would be a cool little ancillary benefit of that. <laughs> Lindsay, your brother's not going to like that. Uh-oh. I know. Okay, it's specifically about T-Rexes. He's always loved the Jurassic Park T-Rex. I mean, um, we all have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, any news about feathers and cooing just makes his blood boil. <laughs> I suppose he wasn't a fan of the research that concluded that they likely didn't vocalize through roars, but rather through chirps. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure when he read that, I heard him from across the room. <laughs> uh, no, I told I told him about that in the car. Oh. 
Yeah. <laughs> Did he swerve? <laughs> <laughs> Almost. But yeah, um, I think it. I think also it's the whole like monster thing. Like again, my brother really liked the recent Godzilla movie because mm. big monster that roars. <laughs> I still have to see Godzilla King of Monsters. Um, mainly based on my friend Jake's recommendation of I love her. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I can see this Dinotopia movie having a lot of color and it being very pretty. So one thing that I wanted to, for people who aren't familiar um, with the property, um, these these dinosaurs are all sentient. They're all intelligent. Uh, many of them can talk. Some of them don't have the right mouth parts to form human speech, so they approximate. And there are like there's a couple of species that that like have very dexterous tongues and mouths, and so they're like they act as interpreters throughout Dinotopia. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, predators, uh, the big apex predators, they are they are sentient, but and they're not all they're not villains necessarily, but they do get hungry. And so Dinotopians, they kind of have this system worked out where the predators live in what's called the Rainy Basin, which is like this interior rainforest of Dinotopia. And whenever they've got spare meat, um, they kind of just like throw it into the basin. And they're like, don't, don't start killing us wantonly. <laughs> um, and so like when, when caravans travel through the Rainy Basin, they they usually go under armed escort, but they also just like bring a lot of of food with them, and then like the theropods will kind of show up, and they'll be like, "You you gonna feed us, or are we gonna feed ourselves?" And then they throw them a bunch of meat, and they continue <laughs> on. Um, but James Gurney still has a way of uh, uh, weaving an angry, bloodthirsty theropod into most of the stories that he writes, which is fun. <laughs> I mean, it creates some pretty good chasing. Yeah. Yep. And I guess early politics for children's explaining the this different class of citizens that we mm. keep in the jungle. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm glad you mentioned politics. Um, so uh, I think one of the big hurdles for this sort of property to overcome would be making making a utopia interesting. I think that like dramatically interesting. I think there's a lot of inherent uh, challenges to overcome there. Uh, I don't know, and, and maybe I'm just—I mean, I guess I am just speaking for myself here. But when when I was sitting down uh, to be like, how would I adapt this to a film? I thought, well, my first issue is I don't really care if a utopia is failing. Um, not 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 immediately, not automatically. Like if like the utopia like the way that dinotopia works they've got all these advantages there's like they don't really have currency everybody just like barters their time and everyone's happy with that uh everybody lives unnaturally long lives by chewing on this plant um and so of course there's one of the books is like the plot is the the crop for that magic plant is failing and so oh no we're only going to live to 80 now instead of 200 and i just hear that and it's like uh, i don't know for me it's like uncompelling on the face of it a little bit um to watch the society confront the abject horror of possibly not being perfect um but then 
early in the first book, uh, one of the one of the people who's shipwrecked on Dinotopia, he meets someone else, another human who had been shipwrecked years earlier, and he doesn't like Dinotopia, and uh, and his name is Lee Crab, and there's this magnificent illustration of him in the first book. He would be if I were casting this, I would cast either Woody Harrelson or or I think even better than that would be uh I think I'm blanking out Michael Rooker, I think his name is. He he played Yondu in uh Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Uh okay. but so anyway so so Lee Crab runs up to the to the hero and he like he like whispers to him, he's like, you know, Dinotopia, you think it means utopia with dinosaurs, but it's not. It Dinotopia is a Greek word. Dino dinos meaning terrible. And topia meaning place. This is a terrible <laughs> place. <laughs> um, which I thought was very intriguing that, unfortunately, the, the picture books for children don't really delve too deep into it. But the idea that uh, this place presenting itself as a utopia actually has lots of deep-seated, hidden systemic problems. And I don't know, if I were adapting this, that's what I would start burrowing into and examining to try and make it interesting, try and make it relevant to a society that is going through so many systemic problems right now. That... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's that would be a really interesting way to go about it, because I do remember from the miniseries, um, I did do a quick Google of Lee Crab Dinotopia, mm. and this was David Thewlis's character. Ah. Back then. <laughs> the, the, I think the only actors who, like, continued doing things from that series were David Thewlis and Wentworth Miller. Oh. Oh, I didn't know Wentworth Miller went went on with that. <laughs> well, he was one of the brothers mm. in the in the miniseries, and then he was like Prison Break and Captain Cold and all that jazz. Oh, right, right. He was also a fishman in Buffy, but that wasn't like a big role. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's got to start somewhere. Everybody's got to start with a fishman. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, so first off, yeah, I think Michael Rooker would be a good choice, but. In the miniseries, what I remember was that it was an energy crisis, but the the governing body was keeping that a secret from the the people because they didn't want to like they didn't want mass panic or whatever. And this was the reason that Crab was like, "Oh, see, they're lying to us, and so that's why it's a terrible place." Mm. And mm. the other big part of the miniseries was just the two shipwreck brothers trying to find their dad. Oh yeah, I remember yeah. that. So there's the possibility that that would like. We we could probably take that and like reformat it for the film, but there's also possibility that the whole film is just the brothers looking for their dad, and potentially they don't only find his corpse or they don't find him at all, and it's like a character thing in that you're just gonna have to deal with the fact that you're stuck here and you don't know where your dad is. Oh, um, that that brings up an interesting question. Do do we? Do we keep it set in the 1860s or do we bring it up to the modern day? I think it would make sense to make it modern. That, which brings me to my next question. How is this island still not discovered? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, it's magic. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, that is one option. <laughs> one part magic, one part location. Mm -hmm. uh, listen, the thing is, we have to hand wave it or there are going to be like, there's some going to be someone on Twitter who's like, why does America not just invade Dinotopia? <laughs> well, people, have you ever heard of zones of isolation? 
Those are like the most um, furthest points on the globe. So okay. like um, the furthest point out to sea or the furthest point inland. Okay. Yeah. So Dinotopia could just be sitting out there. In the middle of the Pacific. And one of the reasons why nobody goes there is because it's really hard to get there. Because mm. there's no like close islands. Yeah. I like the idea of people just i'm just again everything i'm going to say in this section of the podcast is just spitballing but i like the <laughs> idea of um people do know about it but they're just not making it public yeah or something um yeah like there's this one island in the south atlantic i forget what it's called but it's like uninhabited it was lost for a time actually <laughs> like some explorers went there in the 18 18- tens found it put it onto a map and then forgot about it for a long time because <laughs> it was just w- another one of those places that was ridiculously hard to get to so it also had the benefit of being close to antarctica so mm. and that explorer's name was james gurney and everything he wrote <laughs> was real <laughs> it's, you know you laugh but like the premise of the book is that james gurney found the diary the journal of this guy who was shipwrecked and so he's just like illustrating the journal in the narrative. James Gurney's like, I didn't make up any of this. I'm just transcribing this guy's journals. Oh, he's pulling a Tolkien. <laughs> he's pu- he's pulling a Frank Baum. <laughs> um, it could also be like if we're setting it modern times. It could basically be a legend in the same vein of Atlantis, or even a cr- not a cryptid because it's a landmass, <laughs> but given the same kind of weight as like. Well, there's some evidence, but nothing hard. But a lot of people think it's real, and but we don't know how to get there. You know, the problem that I kept... Because I wanted... Um, I don't know. I What you're going to learn throughout the course of this podcast is I have I have overthought this to hell. Um, <laughs> you're valid. <laughs> and so, yeah, my first instinct was, yeah, keep it keep it in modern times. Why not? But, I, but then I was like, I was trying to in... I was trying to give it like a... Uh, I guess you'd call it the the good old college try at coming up with a plausible explanation for why we haven't heard about this island. Uh, like maybe Michael Crichton style. Um, take these old adventure concepts from the 1850s and like update them and talk about them with modern technology. But I kept running into the fact that there's a a a map of Dinotopia at the beginning of each book, and it gives the scale. And it indicates that this island is like 300 miles wide. <laughs> so it's just like, it's just like, uh, don't check my math on this, but it's like, it's like four Californias just sitting out in the ocean that no, that the public knows nothing about. <laughs> so I'm like, fog, lots of fog. <laughs> there, there's so much fog and coral. <laughs> Pocket dimension. I don't know. <laughs> Do some face stuff. I'm pretty sure that's what the miniseries did. <laughs> I was going to mention pocket dimension, although I was I was going to specifically uh, match Surge's very viable science with some BS pseudoscience. That works too. In yeah. one season of Super Sentai, which <laughs> the Japanese show that turns into Power Rangers, um, the premise was that when the KT meteorite hit, instead of the dinosaurs being killed off, they were just launched into another dimension. Oh my gosh. And so what if that's what happened? <laughs> Dinotopia is like in a pocket dimension that started when the meteorite hit, 
and they just started becoming acclimated to all the culture and civilization when human beings kept on slipping in by accident. Hmm. I think you either have to do something that ridiculous <laughs> uh, or ignore it entirely and just Game of Thrones it. Just This is just a high fantasy land that I mean, then you, but then you eliminate the shipwreck angle. But, um, but otherwise, yeah, either either it has always existed, or it never existed. I guess those are the two options I'm talking about. Anyway, or you could do a whole lost ship thing where it's like from our world, start sailing out, and then it gets quote unquote lost, but we know where it went to. Mm. Yeah, with a whole different dimension thing. I feel like the concept of pocket dimensions has entered the popular consciousness enough that we could just throw that out and everyone's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, pocket dimension. My only concern, um, because I've thought about this enough to have concerns, <laughs> um, <laughs> is that the more fantastical elements you throw into it, the quicker the audience's eyes will glaze over, I think. Which, maybe not. I mean, I know, I know a lot of people love this stuff. Um, but like, you know, there was a show that kept popping up in my head every time I was thinking about how to adapt this. And that show was Terra Nova. Oh, uh, see, I almost thought that was what you were adapting first. Ah. I was, I was, I, cause I was trying to figure out and I was researching like, uh, okay, Lost World. Well, no, Lost World never had video games. Uh, Terra Nova, Terra Nova is not based off books. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. maybe it's Dinotopia. <laughs> but yeah, so Terra Nova was for people who don't know it was a a very short-lived it was a one season tv show that came out in like 2011 uh and it had a lot of backing behind it it was produced by steven spielberg it was on a major network um it had steven lang playing the bad guy uh who's like a carbon copy version of the character he played in avatar um, <laughs> back back when avatar was popular <laughs> um and so uh uh but it crashed and burned um and i i don't know i i that's like a, a show that it's exactly the sort of thing that five-year-old surge would have would have gone crazy for but i watched two episodes and i was just like i don't care about anything um and i wouldn't want to make the same mistake with dinotopia and so i was trying to think of before we sat down to record i was trying to think of everything that that show did to alienate my affection for it um, and every time they threw in, like, more time travel and more sci-fi gobbledygook, I was kind of like, all right, well, these just feel like plot contrivances. Well, I think if we just stick to just one thing, like, the only fan- like fantastical thing is it's in a pocket dimension. And then everything else we can explain by saying, well, this is naturally what would happen if there was a bunch of dinosaurs and then humans started landing and they started educating them essentially Mm -hmm. yeah because this would be over the course of thousands of years most of human civilization yeah especially during the colonial era where everyone's trying to find like the secret route to china (laughs) yeah and in uh a land apart from time that was the first book it's explained that the dinotopians survived the main extinction event the siren extinction so basically they've been evolving on their own for millions of years by this point yeah and it has been theorized that they might have been able to develop some level of sentience and speech had they been allowed to evolve for longer but again that's a what like real dinosaurs yeah there's been some thought about it, like what would have happened if dinosaurs had managed to survive to today instead of turning into birds. 
And some birds do have some capacity for at least intelligent thought. Yeah. Like there was that parrot who like basically passed the sentience test. Alex the African Grey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I I, I kind of took a semester about that parrot in college. <laughs> I, I was not able to go that deep. I just read an article about him once, but my favorite thing was that when they tried training other parrots and they got it wrong, he would make fun of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mention that. Um, I'm I'm rereading uh, Congo by Michael Crichton right now, which is um, uh, it's about this ape that has learned sign language. And Michael Crichton, he would blend fact with fiction and he'd like present a factoid and then give a like a citation for a research paper to it. Anyway, one of the things that he cited was these behavioral studies of apes that had learned sign language, which were asked to sort photographs of humans, apes and themselves into two piles and without fail they put their own picture in with the humans rather than the apes that cannot sign hmm huh. so that is a fact that i have relayed and now we can get back on subject <laughs> yeah i okay I, I did have an idea for what actually what the plot could be if we're setting it in modern times it could start as so many of these kind of things do with someone theorizing that Dinotopia is real and going on a whole quest to find it. Mm. And then the plot would be, if we're able to escape, do we expose it? Mm. I like that. I mean, yeah, I, I dig yeah. it. <laughs> because, like, I, I totally get what you were saying earlier, how, like, it's really interesting to start with something that looks like a utopia on the outside, and then there's something kind of seedy going on underneath. Mm-hmm. And it does make a lot of sense for what's going on in our real world, unfortunately. <laughs> but also, like, Dinotopia is such this, it's a childlike fantasy. It's a utopia where everyone gets along. I almost, d- I don't really want to undermine that necessarily. I want yeah. to say, no, this whole thing is great and wonderful, and we don't want to ruin it by having modern sensibilities show up and say, Hey, what if this was now a theme park resort? <laughs> you know? Okay. So that reminds me of another thought I'd had. Um, it, uh, another angle besides the idea that, Oh, this place seems like a utopia, but it's actually evil underneath. And that, that could certainly work. And you could explore a lot of ideas that way. My other thought was, uh, and in fact, it was more, more faithful to the books where like, you have some outsiders arrive at the island and yeah. oh this place is utopia and then there are these constantly these things these emergencies that need sorting like the like we take actual plots from the book like um the big giant river that that feeds the capital dries up one day uh and they have to go on a quest to figure out why the river dried up and uh the crops are failing on another side of the island and they got to go figure out why and one of the outsiders is like, geez, for a utopia, this place has constant problems. Am I right? And the residents are kind of like, that's that's how you build a home, though. It's yeah. it's never going to be perfect. It's just, but you have to take care of the problems when they arise. And the question is, are you going to do it with everybody or against everybody? Yeah. And I kind of dug that angle, too. Because, like, a, a utopia, it's a society thing, like... If, if we fix all of our problems, that doesn't... Okay, actually, if we fix our problems, it does mean that the climate's going to stabilize, I would imagine. But, like, 
like hurricanes and stuff won't be completely gone forever and like right. we will still have all manner of ecological issues it's just that we can handle them better because we're working together we're not trying to spin it for a buck or deciding that well your crop failure happened because you deserved it somehow right or doing the whole i don't see a problem here <laughs> it doesn't affect me so everything is fine yeah <laughs> yeah because the other thing i was thinking about plot wise um and yeah this is kind of taking it from a studio ghibli film um laputa where uh they are our main characters are going to what seems like a paradise and it is a paradise but it's also got something there that the villains want mm. some sort of resource or in the case of Lapito, a weapon. Sorry for spoiling a <laughs> almost thirty-year-old movie. If if it's six months old, I I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so hey. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I was gonna go off on a weird tangent. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> okay. So we, we've decided we're gonna reboot Dinotopia. Who do we take it to? Do we take it to Disney? Because they have the most money, do we take it to Universal? Because they have experience with dinosaur properties? Do we take it to Studio Ghibli? Disney would love to get their hands on Dinotopia, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And Universal does have like that really good dinosaur CGI. Mm. Uh, Studio Ghibli, I think... Like, it's going to win awards, but... We won't be able to see it in North America for a while. Yeah. It's probably on DVD Blu-ray release. Mm. And like if we were to go animate, I think Ghibli is the only one that I would trust it with necessarily. Because mm. we want it to be non-hyper-realistic, but have like a realistic weight to it. I feel like other animation studios might make it too cartoony, if you know what I mean. Right. Pixar. Yeah. I mean, no offense to Pixar. I love Pixar, but... Yeah. Well, and I, I watch Pixar stuff because I like it to be cartoony, yeah. but if if it was Dinotopia, I would want it to be a little bit more grounded, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm sure Disney has some, like, Iguanodon animatronics or something that love they'd love to dig out of storage and retrofit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's probably so many animators who are like, I am sick of doing all of these live-action remakes. Can you please do something neat. <laughs> I mean, technically, this is also a live-action uh, remake-ish, sort of. It's just, we didn't crib from another Disney property. <laughs> We're not retreading the golden, or the Disney renaissance. Yeah. Because I was also thinking DreamWorks, but they're... I don't know. They're one of those things, they do good work, but then they've also got some stuff where it's like, oh, you're just, like, angry at Disney again. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I think what it would come down to is which company is willing to shell out for the effects we'd want, preferably practical. Mm. Um, yeah. And that really, it, honestly, it depends on like what day of the week you talk to them. It sounds like from some production stories. Mm. We just happened to talk to, we had the right director talking to the like the right intern who talked to the right producer <laughs> who just felt like signing a check. <laughs> on the topic of animatronics, um, I'm thinking of Jurassic World and then its sequel, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And the 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 special effects-induced whiplash of going from precisely one shot of an animatronic dinosaur in Jurassic World 
to having a surprising i think there were more animatronics in jurassic world fallen kingdom than in any previous jurassic park film there was there was a practical t-rex there was a practical raptor there were practical indoraptors stygimolic um i don't know but i guess and i'm mentioning all this because i wonder if if we could go back to the the goal of having as many practical dinosaurs as possible that would be neat yeah like i always come back to practical because practical often ages better Mm. when it's done well um and like the first jurassic park did it the best yeah you like you show that to anyone and if they didn't know it was made in the 90s they'd swear it was made today yeah until they saw the unix system (laughs) that's true (laughs) Well, not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I there are some programs at my work that uses DOS still, so it's like ah. not totally out of. <laughs> <laughs> it's believable. It's plausible. I mean, I work in the public sector, so it's a lot of uh, how can we avoid having to pay the most for this? <laughs> yeah, it's a Unix system. I still know this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Add one word, and then it could be taking place in modern day. Yeah. <laughs> Barbasol is still a brand. Is Richard Kiley still getting work? You never know. Sometimes they just pop out of the woodwork. <laughs> but the director that came into my mind was, of course, um, Steven Spielberg. Mm. Yeah. Like, I was thinking if George Lucas approached the author about these books, then maybe George Lucas would also like to... Or Steven Spielberg. They're a pair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they went to school together. I would honestly, I'd love to see George Lucas come out of semi-retirement to direct the Dinotopia movie. Yeah, I would. I would pre-order tickets for that. Yeah, he would definitely have a good eye for it. I'm just. I'm also looking at the people who directed the Chronicles of Narnia, because mm. I feel like that's might be the closest to the atmosphere in terms of the fantastic, childlike wonder we want to capture in this. Mm. The guy who directed the first two Narnia movies. Also worked on the first two Shreks? Hmm. Huh. Well, those were actually pretty good movies. Oh, yeah, they were. It was just, I didn't, I was surprised by the connection. He did also direct a Cirque du Soleil show. Oh, yeah. So, Andrew Adamson, that might be a good choice. Hmm. I don't know. The chaotic evil in me is like, give it to David Fincher. Just <laughs> <laughs> see what he could do. Or uh, Ron Howard's probably my first serious suggestion. I think he Ron Howard, I could definitely see. I also looked up the guy who directed the Golden Compass movie from 2007. Mm. He seems to be a bit of a fantasy guy himself. Like he's looking into doing a live out, a live action adaptation of Michael Moorcock's Elric saga. Okay, so he's he, yeah. like he's kind of hankering to do something fantastical. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he's got some interesting projects in the fire coming up. Um. Solely based on seeing Knives Out. Let's just throw Ryan Johnson in there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he could direct a reading of the phone book and I'd be like, all right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's the new Benoit Block mystery. He's going to find Dinotopia. <laughs> <laughs> Will Daniel Craig do another accent? <laughs> a different accent. <laughs> I saw this great tweet that was, yeah, it was just he should be solving crimes in different cities. Um, in different installments of the series and every single installment he's got a different accent and it's never addressed <laughs> apparently Ryan Johnson saw that tweet too and he's considering it oh nice <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, although that, that does bring me back to at least a small thing for Dinotopia itself. Because another thing I recall from the miniseries that all the dinosaurs were British. Actually, I think everyone on the island was British except for the, the brothers who got shipwrecked on there. Because mm. if it's old-fashioned, it's got to be British, yeah. and that's it. <laughs> like, if we made the movie, it would be nice if there was a bit more broader scope of accents and languages. Yes. Yeah. Skin tones, cultures, religions. I... I'd like to say that I'm sure it was a pretty good diverse cast in the background of the miniseries, but I can't remember that. I'm quite certain the main cast were all white. Yeah, they were. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm referring to our reboot, not necessarily miniseries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, the Dinotopia TV series was from the U.S. Uh, the miniseries says that, um, yeah, it was a U.S. production, but it seems to have been filmed in Germany. Hmm. With European productions, that tends to lend to... Like, if they're going to market to an English audience, they're going to get mostly British actors. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. It's cheap. It's convenient. They're right over there. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, the sporadic bits and pieces I remember from the miniseries, like, of the stuff I mentioned, like Wentworth Miller, David Thewlis, um, I don't know who played the quote-unquote king of Dinotopia, but he reminded me a lot of the king from Spaceballs, <laughs> in how kind of flighty and ineffectual he was. And then the slacker brother showed up for, like, his final exam at dinosaur school or something, and he just wrote, like, the first, like, verse of Bohemian Rhapsody. And since no one on Dinotopia had ever heard of Bohemian Rhapsody, because the last people shipwrecked were, like, 1940, they're like, wow, this is so deep! <laughs> yeah, we could totally get an amazing assortment of actors and voice actors behind this. Mm. Like... What if... Okay, what if we get Wentworth Miller back and he plays the <laughs> crab? <laughs> Don't trust Dinotopia. <laughs> I would be in favor of that. He talks in his in his smooth Wentworth Miller voice <laughs> that I'm I'm going to try to do, but I'm probably going to sound like Palpatine. <laughs> this is the voice Palpatine did in order to conceive a child. <laughs> I hope that Palpatine did that way back in the day. The, the smooth, dulcet tones of the dark side can lead to many things you would consider unnatural. Look, Tanner, Ryan's planning on having a roundtable about the Star Wars movie. You can voice your opinions then. My opinion was I decided to go see Cats instead, and I was much more entertained. Then again, when I saw it, I was uh, it was under the perfect conditions of... There were six of us in the theater. Well, yeah, we're five of you. We're just riffing on it, and I turned it into a sing-along showing. Are, are we talking about cats or Star Wars? Cats. Okay. So, I think the other thing is, like, where would we film it? Um, what sort of environments? Or are we just going to go... <laughs> Wherever the tax breaks are. Yeah. You said that Naboo was northern Italy, right? Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Like, especially the stuff from episode two was filmed specifically at Lake Como, mm -hmm. one of those beautiful places on this planet. Let's go to northern Italy for the more, uh, like, suburban stuff. All of those, like, gently rolling hills and whatnot. And then for if we're going to the Rainy Basin, I'm sure we can get stuff in New Zealand. Yeah. Mm. I also, I, I happen to know that um, Jurassic Park always shoots in Hawaii whenever they need rainforest shooting in Hawaii. Yeah. Is cheaper than going to an actual rainforest although i guess there are actual rainforests in hawaii but yeah it's just that they give out tax breaks a lot yeah. uh quicker I mean, yeah, yeah that's the thing if they if if hollywood got the best tax breaks in 
a a blue screen cyclorama in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm sure that's where they wind up filming it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Power Rangers has survived um I think going on 20 years now by the credit of they film in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> and toys. And there will be Dinotopia toys. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can see a lot of kids going through major dinosaur phases because of this movie. <laughs> yeah, it'll start the whole craze all over again. So many young paleontologists over at like the University of Alberta. <laughs> You know what? You know what? How have Hasbro produced this? Because they're, oh. they're trying to put more stock in their film division. Must we, though? <laughs> Listen, the... Hasbro overarching, I'm sure, is fine. It was Michael Bay that was the issue with Transformers. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, give it to Hasbro because then they can do the Dinotopia movies and then they can put out another Dinosaur Power Rangers, create <laughs> the same perfect storm that created Dinosaur Children in the 90s, because that's what happened to me. <laughs> And then tr try and sync it up so that, like, if we have a an Animorphs going, that's when we release oh. the Time of the Dinosaurs special. <laughs> a crossover where the Animorphs visit Dinotopia. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's our end game. <laughs> yeah, Universal, um, I don't know. Every once in a while they create something good, but then it's like, oh, you really dropped the ball with that one. In fact, I think the fact that they are that they are already producing Jurassic World probably lowers the chances of them taking on Dinotopia. Yeah. yeah. Or they might take it on and then just just go the, the 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 digital babysitter route and just market it to like the youngest possible audience just to distinguish itself from Jurassic World. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But considering the source material, that's fair. Like we don't need mm. edgy Dinotopia. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing we need to do is have yet another dark and gritty reboot. Yeah. Yeah, like, I see this being a very intelligent film that I could still bring, like, a very young cousin mm. with me, and they would be entertained. Yeah. Yeah. Younger doesn't necessarily mean dumber or less quality, and or at the very least it shouldn't. Right. Yeah. Like, I like to point to Studio Ghibli for, like, this is what an intelligently made children's animated feature should be mm. they did um um nausicaa right nausicaa in the valley yeah okay yep all right that's the one i'm most yeah. familiar with and I, I love that movie to pieces I, i'd be cool if 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 it went animated and it went to studio ghibli i'd be like all right yeah i'm such a fan of nausicaa i have the entire manga set of it nice yeah <laughs> which goes a lot deeper into what was going through Hayao Miyazaki's head at the time. Hmm. Very interesting thought about freedom of choice and political systems. <laughs> how they need to be able to adapt to a situation instead of, you know, this is the way that we do it, we do not change. Yeah. And you know, that's another thing that we could work into a Dinotopia movie. We have so many ideas, part of me wants to make it a, like a miniseries, if not just a series of movies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, just... You've been doing fine for these hundreds of years, but the world is still changing. And at some point, you are going to have to look at what you're doing and say, maybe we should change how a few things are working so that we can keep this utopia going. Hmm. N not to relate everything back to Michael Crichton, but um, <laughs> in, in one of Ian Malcolm's roles in the in the book series, Jurassic Park, was to point out that any healthy system not only can tolerate a little bit of chaos, 
but must tolerate, must incorporate a little bit of chaos because if it's if it's changing too fast, it will collapse, and if it's too rigid, it will collapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our hero might come to Dinotopia and at first be wearied by the constant adjustments that the society that the society keeps making to all these different conditions, both internal and external. And then somebody just got to point out that's what makes us healthy. Yeah. Yeah. So. Inter- very interesting stuff. So yeah, we can definitely go deep if we need to. All right, so we're coming up on an hour. I think we've covered most of what we can for a movie, unless you have any final thoughts, Serge? Uh, Michael Rooker as Lee Crab. I'd like that to be on the record one more time. <laughs> okay, I, I definitely agree. <laughs> okay. What Wentworth Miller is in there as someone else. Yes. Maybe he voices uh, the... There was like a, a Galabimus professor or something. Yeah, or the Lambiosaur Paddlefoot. <laughs> There we go. So if that's the case, uh, I think we'll quickly go over to a friendship promo. The Crypto Naturalist podcast has been described as Bob Ross crossed with Welcome to Night Vale and David Attenborough meets the X-Files. I would describe it as a loving look at nature. Just, well, nature I can guarantee you've never heard before. The show features strange creatures in unusual locations, guest poetry and fiction, and field reports voiced by people like Adel Rafai and Justin McElroy. Find The Crypto Naturalist anywhere you find podcasts or at CryptoNaturalist.com. So, Serge, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on YouTube at Cold Crash Pictures. That's that's my handle. That's my channel. Um, I also occasionally tweet, mostly just reviews of the movies I've watched. That's at Cold Crash Picks. All right. And and hopefully coming soon to a theater near you. <laughs> yeah. Your film Second Service, that's available for free on YouTube, right? Yes. Yeah, that's on my channel. All right. So, yeah, you can check him out, get the whole gamut of his stuff, film essays, the films itself, and Godzilla injected directly into the eyeballs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lindsay, how about you? I can be found on Twitter at LindsayM476, that's Lindsay spelled with an A, and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there. Tanner, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at SparkyUpstart, and you can find me on Instagram at SparkyYoungUpstart, and you can also find this very podcast on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for Not If I Reboot You First, and they're pronounced NERIF, which I didn't change because you could say that dinosaurs sounded like that. (laughs) (laughs) As far as we know, and... You can find this very podcast on Instagram at not if I reboot you first. That's all one word. The hashtag that we follow is N-I-I-R-Y-F and it is pronounced Tanner, could you please put a dinosaur noise in post? And you can also email us at notifireaboutyoufirst at gmail.com or you can send us your comments, critiques, criticisms, or what you would do if you were shipwrecked on an island full of talking dinosaurs. You can even ask to be a guest, but if you do, make sure you send us a hint instead of the entire idea, because we do like being surprised. And if you'd like to support us directly, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash first, where you can get a bevy of bonuses by supporting us financially, including a weekly shoutout for all of our patrons, which right now are still Charlie and Cassidy. Thanks, Charlie and Cassidy. 
You can also rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, and if you can't find us on your podcatcher of choice, then contact me and I'll try and get us in there. Last but not least, our cover art, as always, is by Alex, a.k.a. Pachu, and her work can be found on ptchew.com, and our theme music is done by our friend Sean Clake, and you can contact us to find out how to contact him if you'd like music of his own for your own. Lindsay? Tanner? Do you have a hint for next week? Why, yes, I do. Yes. So, next week... It's it's so hard to get a straight answer out of people nowadays. Whatever happened to a nice cup of tea and a civilized interrogation? See, uh, my, my, my brain says spies, but my heart is trying to figure out when Elizabeth Swan said this at some point in a Pirates movie. <laughs> <laughs> but why would you reboot a perfect film? Well, y'all will find out what I'm doing. We've stretched the definition of reboot so far. Like, we can, yeah. we can do Pirate 6. <laughs> no Jack Sparrow. Or recast Jack Sparrow. <laughs> I mean, it makes bank in China. Everything makes bank in China, unless, ironically, you try to pander to them. <laughs> There's a Chinese actress who, she's in Pacific Rim 2, Pacific Rim mm-hmm. Uprising, and, like, her sole purpose, like, in the production of it was just to get Chinese audiences interested. But apparently she's played that same role of getting Chinese audiences interested in, like, seven different American films. <laughs> so the whole oh, audience wow. just started booing every time she came on screen. Which is too bad, because I actually really liked her character in Pacific Rim 2. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> That's a shame. I was actually going to make an R.I.P. Pacific Rim 2 joke, but then but then you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah already been done anyway pacific rim 3 is definitely on the list somewhere oh yeah (laughs) anyways serge thank you again for coming on here thank you so much for having me this was really fun it it really was (laughs) so um in that case we're gonna deal with whatever kind of interrogation techniques Lindsay is doing next week but not if we reboot you first bye bye hashtag that we follow is n-i-i-r-y-f and it is pronounced tanner could you please put a dinosaur noise in post you mean a paracoit noise sure i can do that cool